And let's take our Bibles now and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 5 and 6 today. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you'll find this on page 985. And I've entitled today's message, Living for Gospel Success. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the passage together. So let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you now with open Bibles and minds which are engaged. We are ready to learn from you. We are ready to put into practice the lessons that are learned. Lord, would you please send your spirit among us? Would, would he be ministering to our spirits during the course of this hour together? Would you give us the grace that we'll need to become effective and faithful witnesses for you? We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When Christ called us to be his disciples, he didn't merely call us to follow him. He also called us to go out and be his evangelists. In fact, that's what the Great Commission says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you disciples, go, teach all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So to be a Christian disciple is to be an evangelist for Christ. But we also understand that that is a very big task. And apart from the work of God in our lives and in the lives of our hearers, we will be destined to fail. And so the people of God must be people of prayer. We must ask God to be working in us, through us, and in the hearts of the people that we are desperate to reach for Christ. God must work. And this is what the Apostle Paul taught us in last week's text. Last week we were in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Here the Apostle made an appeal for prayer. And he began by pleading with the church in Colossae to have the right approach to prayer. And so he said, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. And then in the next verses, he offered his specific prayer requests. We see here the kinds of things that we should be praying for if we desire to have evangelistic success. Number one, he, he said we should pray for open doors. That means we pray to God that he would give us access to people, okay? access into their lives so that we might have an opportunity to speak to them. And secondly, he says we should pray for gospel boldness. That's because when it comes to evangelism, we Christians are too often like Arctic rivers, right? We are frozen at the mouth. We've got to ask God to give us opportunities to speak. And then when the opportunities come, we have to have the boldness, the courage to actually tell people about Christ. So God, give me an open door and make me courageous so I'll speak about your son. And then number three, we ask God for verbal clarity. So God, as you make the opportunities and as you give me the courage, would you also give me the words I need to speak? 
Help me to be, to be clear and compelling. Help me to be faithful to what your word says about Christ, but also to, to be able to connect with my listener so that they really get what the gospel is offering to them. And we make all of these prayer requests in the belief that God will use these prayers to use us to reach people for Christ, that lives will be changed forever because of our working and God's working through us. So that was in last week's text. Today, now we're again in verses 5 and 6. In this passage, we learn that there are some other very practical things that we Christians can do in order to maximize our gospel effectiveness. Paul mentions one thing in verse 5 and then another in verse 6. So let's begin with verse 5. Here's one practical thing we can do to be more effective witnesses. First, we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Okay, So we're going to be praying hard, praying for the open doors, for courage, for clarity of speech, but then we're also going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Well, let's start with just the word wisdom. The word wisdom is closely related to the word skillful, skillful. In fact, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, that's how the word gets translated. So in Exodus 35, the word describes the skill of an artist. In Jeremiah 10, it's the skill of a goldsmith. In Psalm 107, it's the navigational skill of a sailor. In our context today, the word speaks of having skill in living your life. To walk in wisdom is to be governed at all times by wise decision-making. You're living at all times in a way that, that is putting the knowledge of God which you possess, uh, putting that to bear on the practical life circumstances that you face, and you're making good decisions at every turn. That's walking in wisdom. Now, how is wisdom developed? Well, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we want to be wise people, if we want to walk in wisdom, then first we must know and love and listen to the God of heaven. He's the source of all wisdom. And I trust that as Christians here, we're already committed to that. So what else can we do to become wise people? Well, the next step after the knowledge of God is life experience. This is something that we gain as we grow older. You see, there's a big difference between having theoretical knowledge of something and having practical knowledge of it. You understand this. This is the difference between being an academic and being a wise person. So let me give you an example here. For a number of years, I worked for a gutter and siding subcontractor. And over the years, I rose up the ranks until I finally ended up as the sales and marketing manager of the company. And I had all kinds of different responsibilities at that point, but the main responsibility was maintaining a good business relationship with our current contractors and then trying to establish new relationships with new contractors. That was my job. And by that point in my job, I could tell our contractors virtually everything they wanted to know about rain gutters. I mean, I could answer any question they had. I could tell them about the thickness of the metal we used on our gutters, 
Okay, it's called the gauge of the metal. I could tell them about the chemical composition of the paint that we applied to the metal. I could tell them the techniques that were used to bond the paint to the metal so it wouldn't chip. I could tell them how we need to angle the gutters so that the rainwater will will uh, run off, but that to the naked eye, it will still look level. I could tell them the kind of caulk that we use, how much of it we use, where we have to apply it. I mean, everything that anybody wanted to know about rain gutters. Okay, I was your man. I could, I could tell you all about it. But now, put me on a job site with a crew, and then I'd be completely lost. Why? Well, because there's a big difference between the book knowledge and the knowledge gained by hands-on experience. I mean, to this day, I don't have a clue how gutter installers do it. Okay? How, how do you like stand at the top of a 30-foot ladder, balancing like a 20-foot rain gutter in your hands, and screw it into place on the fascia board, getting the angle just right, and holding the caught gun? And How do you do it? I don't know. All I did is read books. Those are the guys who really know about installing rain gutters. Well, wisdom in life works about the same way. It's important that you have the book knowledge, which in this case is a good, thorough knowledge of the Christian scriptures. You've got to know that. But you're not going to be wise until you have had opportunities to take that knowledge and apply it in real-world situations. And you figure out how to apply the, the wisdom of Scripture to each relationship that you have. Learning how to please God in the midst of, of all the chaos in your world. This passage says that we must learn how to walk in wisdom... And since it's a passage about evangelism, it's especially concerned with having wisdom toward non-believers. Look again at verse 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's talking about non-believers there. If we're to have success in our evangelistic endeavors with non-believers, we must, we must be praying hard to God to work in their lives and work in us so that we can connect the gospel to them. But then we've also got to learn how to walk in wisdom toward non-believers. Now, non-believers here are not called outsiders because Christians and non-Christians are supposed to be physically separated from each other. Okay, you understand that was the error of some of our predecessors. Back in the medieval age, Many Christians thought the only way to be a faithful Christian is to go out into the wilderness, build a convent or a monastery, totally cut yourself off from any non-believer, and, and that's the only way to do it. Of course, that was greatly an error. Jesus said his disciples are to be salt and light in the world. So we're supposed to be out there among people who don't believe in Christ. The Great Commission tells us to go out and teach all nations. We can't fulfill that if we've isolated ourselves from non-believers. You see, in order to be witnesses, we have to be living a substantial amount of our days among people who do not yet profess faith in Christ. We must. We're to be in the world, but not of the world, the Scriptures say. But as we are out in the world, 
working among non-believers, we must also walk in wisdom. We must learn how to skillfully navigate the dynamics of the believer-non-believer relationship. That's what this is, is saying to us. Let me suggest some things that we need to be especially cognizant of as we engage with non-believers. Okay, this is the application of wisdom. First, I think we need to be able to recognize when non-believers are sincerely interested in knowing about Christ and when they're just trying to prank us. We need to have wisdom to see the difference. Because as we're out there in the world, we will encounter both kinds of people. You're going to find many, many people who do not embrace Christ in faith. They wouldn't identify as Christians, but they're really interested in learning about him. And they're going to come to you in all sincerity of heart saying, I would like to learn from you about Christ. Tell me your own testimony and so forth. There are going to be other people that you encounter who want nothing to do with Christ, but they will feign interest for the purpose of making a fool out of you. Now, of course, Jesus was a master at recognizing who he was dealing with in any given situation. You know, all day long, Jesus would, would just pour himself out to non-believers who were interested in learning from him. And he'd talk to them one-on-one, he'd talk to them in groups, devote himself to such people. But Jesus was also aware of this other group of non-believers, the ones who were really hostile and they wanted to ruin him. Matthew chapter 22 gives us a good example of this. So Matthew 22, it says a group of scribes and Pharisees approached Jesus. They started pouring on the flattery. They said, Jesus, you are obviously a man of God. Nobody teaches the way that you teach. Can you answer our questions? So Jesus says, okay. And they say, here's what's been nagging at us. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or no? Now, superficially, it looked like these scribes and Pharisees were sincere seekers after God, right? I mean, they're pouring on the flattery, like I said, and they're asking a really interesting question. But Jesus was wise, and he was wise toward outsiders. And he knew, based on the people he was dealing with, the the nature of their approach to him, the kind of question that it was, that this was not a sincere group of people. You see, here was the trap they were actually trying to set for Jesus. If he said, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then every Jew in Israel was going to hate Jesus from then on. Why? Because the Roman Empire was an occupying force in Israel. If Jesus said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes, he would basically be legitimizing the foreign occupation. No Jew is going to put up with that. On the other hand, if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to have the entire government of Rome on his back, probably charging him with sedition because he's encouraging people not to pay the taxes that they are levying. So there was no good way to answer the question as the Pharisees and scribes had framed it. They weren't interested in learning from Jesus. They were interested in getting Jesus to say something that would ruin his ministry. Well, in the same way, we Christians can encounter people 
who will give a superficial appearance of sincerity, but if we have wisdom, which means we know the scriptures, we know what the Bible says about human nature, and we've seen it through life experience, then we are going to know when a person is trying to catch us, make fools of us, rather than truly learn of Christ. I can give you a a contemporary example of this. Uh, Back in 2003, a comedian named Al Franken sent a, a letter to then Attorney General John Ashcroft asking if he'd be willing to contribute to a book that Franken was writing. And we have a copy of the letter because it's since been made public. It was written on Harvard University stationery. And here's what the letter said. Dear Attorney General Ashcroft, I'm currently a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government where I'm working on a book about abstinence programs in our public schools. The book is entitled, quote, Savin' It. What a title. In this day of rampant immorality, unwanted pregnancies, and dangerous sexual diseases, Savin' It will document how the Bush administration is championing abstinence programs and setting the right example for America's youth. I would very much appreciate it if you would share your abstinence story. He, He goes on. I found the kids respond best to total honesty. So don't be afraid to share a moment when you were tempted to have sex, but were able to overcome your urges through willpower and strength of character. And then he adds, be funny, be serious, but most of all, be real. Kids can sense a phony a mile away. Thankfully... Attorney General John Ashcroft, being a wise Christian, could also sense a phony from a mile away. And he he looked at the situation and he said, wait a minute. I know who Al Franken is and I know what his career has looked like. He has spent a lifetime mocking people like me, Ashcroft was saying. He says, I also know that Al Franken is not employed by the University of Harvard. And he says, in this book, this is totally out of character for Al Franken. So this cannot be real. So he didn't take the bait. Instead, he went public with it. The uh, letter ended up being published nationally. And uh, Al Franken was disgraced as a result. You see, this is what it looks like when you walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Okay? It means that you are extremely eager to share Christ with those who do not yet know him. And you can't wait for opportunities to do so. But you also have the ability to know when someone is sincere with you and when when they're not. It's important to develop that wisdom, as we'll find out in a few moments. Here's something else that we must keep in mind if we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We must learn how to build meaningful relationships with the ungodly without becoming ungodly ourselves. And again, Jesus is the master at this. So the enemies of Jesus had a, had a kind of a nickname for him. They called him the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that's because Jesus had a habit of finding the so-called dregs of society and spending all his time with them. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the down-and-outers, the physically disabled, the, the people thrown out by the rest of society, those are the ones that Jesus gravitated to. And yet, 
Not once was Jesus guilty of sin himself. So somehow in his wisdom, he was able to to figure this out, that he could be the friend of tax collectors and sinners without once damaging his own moral character. This is what we need to learn as well. Because, friends, sometimes in our eagerness to form bonds with the ungodly, we can sometimes succumb to ungodliness ourselves. And this is something we ought not to do. It was not modeled by Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that is God's desire for us. I even heard of a church a few years ago that had a burden to reach young men in its community. And they tried to figure out what kind of an outreach program could we, could we develop to reach young men. And here's what they came up with. They decided to run a jackass marathon, you know, that MTV show, and then invite all the men in the community to come watch the marathon with them. And they'd provide the popcorn, they'd put it on the big church screen and all of this. Oh, my friends, if you're not familiar with that show, it is a celebration, celebration of godlessness. That is a church becoming ungodly in order to win the ungodly. We can't allow ourselves to succumb to that. Maybe you've, you've encountered situations at work on an individual level. I, you know, back to that gutter company I worked for, I was the, the manager of sales, which meant they expected me to be improving the bottom line for our company. And that meant they wanted me to, to do what they called juicing the customer. Okay, that was their phrase. And what that meant was when we get a homeowner looking for our services, as opposed to a contractor, uh, when we get a homeowner wanting our services, we should throw out our price sheet and we should just make up the price um, and make it as high as possible, juice the customer. Now, I understand that contractors do deserve a lower price. They're going to be repeat customers. They deserve a volume discount. But juicing the customer is extremely unethical. And so when I would take the, the papers from a sale that I'd made with a homeowner and I handed it off to the schedulers and they would look at it, they'd look at the size of the job and they'd look at the price that I'd come up with, they would be enraged. What is this? <laughs> you didn't juice the customer? That's like contractor pricing. It wasn't contractor pricing. I would take the, take the average price our contractors were charging homeowners And then I figured out what the markup should be. And I would do contractor pricing plus their markup, and that's what I would charge. So it was very, very predictable, you know, by the books kind of a thing. But they would be angry. You charged $500 for that? You could have done $1,500. They're not getting any other estimates. They don't know what gutters cost these days. Well, I did feel a temptation there to start putting more dollars onto onto those estimates so that I could keep, keep a good relationship with my coworkers. Right? I want to be friends with them. I want them to like me. I want opportunities to invite them to my church. So, so surely I can just kind of fudge on this a little bit to try to stay in good with the coworkers and keep those doors open? No. No, we must not compromise our moral integrity in the name of reaching unbelievers with the gospel of Christ. 
See, over the long term, we will actually undermine our gospel witness if we do this. We'll give people the impression that the gospel really doesn't have any demands on a person, that the gospel really doesn't bring about any kind of internal change in your desires and your value systems. It doesn't, in my case at the sales department, it would reveal that, hey, gospel-shaped people just want to maximize profits too. They don't care about providing good services at reasonable prices for people. They just want to get rich like everyone else. You see... The, the short-term desire to keep the opportunity open with somebody will actually cause long-term damage as you undermine the credibility of the gospel of Christ. So we want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, okay? We want to judge when someone's coming to us in sincerity and when they're not. We also want to make sure that we're building relationships with the ungodly without becoming ungodly ourselves, you know, winning the, the loss by becoming like the lost. But then there's something else that we need to be aware of, and this is all on our end of things. We need to make sure that we personally do nothing to prejudice non-believers against the gospel of Christ. You guys know what the number one charge against Christian is? We're hypocrites, right? Charges, we're all hypocrites. Now, I have found just over my years of experience that that's usually just uh, an excuse that somebody will give for not, for not listening to the gospel from me. Okay? They'll say, I don't want to listen to you. Every Christian is a hypocrite. Or I'm not going to try your church. Every, every church member is a hypocrite. It's just an excuse. They have no real, actual evidence to back that up. But sadly, there are cases of Christian hypocrites. They've been all over the news the last few years, right? We've seen all of these megachurch pastors who completely uh, fell in ministry. Their churches were brought to shambles or major televangelists in years past whose media empires exploded because of, of things they had been concealing in their lives. There are Christian hypocrites. And we want to be very careful that we do not live as hypocrites before the people that we would desire to introduce Christ to. Sometimes we may need to help a non-believer understand there's a difference between a, a hypocrite and an imperfect person. A hypocrite is someone who says that they believe one thing and they present themselves as if they're living a certain way when they're just doing it for their own value, right? To make, they're doing it to keep the offerings coming in the offering plate, or they're doing it to, to build their media empire. So they put on this facade, they tell people what the people want to hear, but they don't really believe or live any of it. That's a hypocrite. An imperfect person is just somebody who's not in heaven yet. That's most of us, right? Most of us are not hypocrites. We're just people who have beliefs and ideals and we have moral commitments, but we have a hard time being consistent about keeping them. It's not because we don't believe in them. It's just because we have these sin natures that keep coming out. So sometimes we'll have to tell our coworkers, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I lost my temper and I snapped at you. I believe that that is sin. I believe that I need to learn how to have... Um, control of my temper. Teach them that you're not perfect, that you're also not a hypocrite. We don't want to give non-Christians any excuse for rejecting Christ because of what they have seen in us. 
So be real in front of people. When you fail, admit it. And in doing so, you keep those gospel opportunities alive. Friends, I think all of this is what Paul is talking about when he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And now we have that little participial clause at the end of verse 5, which explains the, the value of walking in wisdom. He says, because it will make the best use of the time. It'll make the best use of the time. We could also translate that, it will... It will make the most of every opportunity you're given. You see, if you're walking in wisdom toward non-believers, you are going to be maximizing your opportunity to impact their lives. Because you're not going to fall for the traps of people just trying to prank you, and you're not going to give them any excuses for rejecting Christ because of what they see in your own life. You're not going to undercut the gospel by becoming ungodly to reach the ungodly. See, you will maximize the usefulness of the time that God has given you on this earth. That's what we all want, isn't it? We all want to be faithful ministers of the gospel. Not just pastors, but every Christian wants to be faithful to the gospel of Christ. Every true Christian prays to God for opportunities to talk to people about Christ or to invite them to church, to begin them on the process of learning. We all desire that. We understand if we're not wise toward outsiders, then the alternative will become our reality. We will be wasting our time, wasting our opportunities. We'll be falling for a prank that undercuts our witness. We'll come under the influence of ungodly behaviors. We'll behave so poorly in front of non-believers that we give them an excuse to reject Christ. We don't want that. Well, that takes us now to verse 6. I'll move more quickly through this verse. Here Paul tells us that there's one more thing that we can do to maximize our gospel impact on others. He says, and let your speech always be gracious. Let me stop there. Let your speech always be gracious. That means as you talk to non-believers, let grace be pouring out of your mouth. Grace is one of the most beautiful words in the English language. Grace is rooted in the very nature of God. It is God's kindness toward those who don't deserve it from Him. And God gives His grace to us. It's by the grace of God that we were saved. And now He desires to use us as channels of His grace into the lives of others. So for us to be gracious people means that we are living our lives as conduits of God's grace. For us to use gracious words with others means that we're ministering the grace of God with our speech. And this will maximize our gospel potential. And Paul says here that we are to always be gracious. So it doesn't matter what mood you are in on this particular day. It doesn't matter that your family members are being punks. And it doesn't matter that your coworkers are being jerks. And it doesn't matter that your, your neighbor is stirring up trouble. In all circumstances, in dealing with all kinds of people, we are to speak 
grace to others. And again, Christ is our model here. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, we're told that one of the things which drew people to Jesus is that, quote, gracious words were coming from his mouth. See, he was a man who spoke grace. People were drawn to that. Think of Jesus' dealings with the woman at the well. Here was a woman with a very checkered past. She tried to conceal it from Jesus. And as he, as he engaged in conversation with her, he was respectful of her, treated her with great dignity. He was very patient with her. He let her tell him her string of lies. And then he stops her and he says, Listen, let's, let's be real. I know all about your background. And he shares the details with her. And he says, But I have something for you. And he ministers the word of God to her, offers himself to her as living water. And it changes her life. She runs out after this encounter, runs back to her home village, and starts telling everybody, you won't believe this man Jesus. You won't believe what he said, what he's like. Jesus was exhibiting gracious speech to this woman. Even as Jesus spoke to the scribes and Pharisees, his speech was gracious even at those times when he would look them in the eyes and say, you Pharisees, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look so beautiful on the outside, but in the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. His words were channeling God's grace to them. How so? Because he wasn't saying those things in order to publicly shame them or to... to um, destroy their dignity as human beings? No, he was doing it first to warn other people not to follow. He was protecting their spiritual well-being. But then for the scribes and Pharisees themselves, he was confronting them with the reality of their condition. They were so self-righteous. He had to strip that from them if they were to be born again. He says, you, you Pharisees, you're not so righteous. You're filled with dead men's bones. You are spiritually dead inside. It was a call to repentance. It was a call to accept his offer of the new birth. His words may have been hard, but they were words that needed to be spoken. And they were for the good of the Pharisees and those who were in the crowds thinking about following Pharisees. It was designed to bring about spiritual life. Christ is our model here. Then we look back at verse 6 in Colossians, and we notice this other descriptor Paul adds here. He says, let your speech always be gracious, and then he says, seasoned with salt. What does it mean to have our speech seasoned with salt? Well, salt was an extremely important commodity in the ancient world. It had many applications. People would, would rub salt onto their meat so it wouldn't rot as quickly. Uh, fishermen would, would cover their, their daily catch in salt so that it could be sent off to the, to the far ports. People used salt to um, improve the taste of their foods, all kinds of applications. In fact, the Greek philosopher Plutarch called salt the crowning season. He said it flavors our food, preserves our bodies, and even works as an aphrodisiac. Now, when Paul says that our speech toward non-believers needs to be seasoned with salt, I think what he means is this. That as we're talking and engaging with non-believers, that what's coming out of our mouths should be words of wisdom and kindness and respect, patience 
understanding, good humor, things like this. See, when our, when our speech is sprinkled with that, our words become much more palatable. When people hear us speaking to them like this, they conclude, hey, here's a person who wants to help me. Right? This person's on my side. We must resist the temptation to respond to angry speech with anger or to respond to sarcasm with more sarcasm. That doesn't go anywhere with a person. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, and here's the reason, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, if you're a faithful Christian, you're going to be regularly interacting with non-Christians. And they're going to talk and you're going to listen. And then you're going to talk and they're going to listen. And there will be an honest back and forth. And sometimes you're going to have questions and sometimes they'll have questions for you. Sometimes their questions will be hostile. Sometimes they'll express contempt. But in all cases, if your speech is governed by grace and if it's seasoned with salt... You will provide answers that make the gospel more desirable to them by the grace of God. There's an article published by uh, Charles Stromer in the Christian Research Journal, which illustrates this point. He recently wrote, quote, on a radio station in Nottingham, England, I once debated a professional psychic who, unbeknownst to me, had a deep animosity toward Christianity. Something was terribly wrong. About halfway through the program, my intuition told me to move in a direction other than trying to win arguments. And so I gently asked her whether a Christian had ever hurt her. So you notice his wisdom being applied here. He knows the Bible. He knows human nature. He's got lots of life experience dealing with people. And he can feel that something isn't exactly right in this conversation. So he knows to switch gears now. And so he asks, live on the radio whether a Christian had ever heard her. He said, it was a risky question because we were live on the radio. He said, there was dead air for several seconds and eternity in radio time. But finally, she described being hurt by a number of Christians. After we spent some time discussing these incidents, I said to her, I want to apologize to you for those Christians who've treated you poorly. Please forgive us. And she did. And by then, her whole demeanor had changed. He says, afterwards, when we were out of the soundproof studio and in the outer offices, she confided to me. She said, quote, because I've been so hurt by Christians, I almost didn't accept the offer to debate you. But now I'd like to ask if we could keep talking. Are you busy this afternoon? See, wisdom applied to a specific case with a specific unbeliever. He speaks to her with grace, seasoned with salt, and her hostility was transformed to openness. I'm convinced that it was God working in this situation because only God softens the heart of a person toward his son. But God used this faithful uh, debater to accomplish it. See, friends, because Christ means so much to us, we can sometimes get really aggressive when we hear a person denigrating him. We can end up responding to their contempt with some of our own contempt. This doesn't serve the cause of Christ well. We're called to endure all things with patience and to speak to all people with grace and humility. 
The reputation of Christ is not enhanced when a Christian falls into these kinds of sinful patterns. So if I can conclude now, we Christians are called to be God's witnesses. God has promised that if we're faithful to this calling, He will use us to reach others with the gospel. But it's also His work, and so we've got to be praying for gospel success. We've also got to be doing evangelism His way, having wisdom in our interactions with outsiders, cultivating speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt. My friends, let us commit to being faithful witnesses this year. Let us see what God will do through Grace Baptist Church as we put these practices into practice. Let's pray now. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the spiritual wisdom that it contains. Help us now to take the wisdom that we've learned from these two verses to apply them to our lives. Help us to become more effective at responding to people with grace and truth, to have, to have speech that is seasoned with salt, not to fall prey to the, the rancorous climate that surrounds us right now, but to be a voice of, of calm. Lord, might we grow spiritually this year? Might we grow numerically as new people are touched by our congregation, and as they come to see the beauty and glory of Christ, and they come to see the tremendous offer that He has made to them, we pray that they would come to faith and repentance, that you might be glorified. We pray these things in His name. Amen.